this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 this is something which uh, i have been waiting for for a long time to meet uh, uh, rafida ahmed bunna in person you can just call me bunna okay <laughs> and uh, i hugely admire her and i i, I hugely admired uh, obijit i always did not agree with his views with his politics but uh, the sheer spirit he had the the commitment to freedom and free speech which he had was awesome and when he was killed in in a, in a, in a very horrific manner just outside uh, dhaka university that too while the book fair was going on yeah. um and bonna just barely escaped with her life and she was telling me how ever since then she has this con- uh, constant migraine attack because her skull was cracked at three different places when they hit with machetes so welcome to india thank you we are still free over here we still believe in free speech and uh, what we'll do is that we will she has a presentation she will tell you her story that should take about 15 minutes then we will be in conversation for around another 20 minutes and then the floor is i mean the you know you are you are welcome to ask her questions but we'll limit it to questions not not bhashans huh? okay is that a deal okay cool um i'll take it to the podium then um, yeah. all right thank you for uh, coming here today Um, I will just get to the point right away because Kanchanda doesn't want me to go beyond 15 minutes. So, um, Avijit and I were attacked uh, by the Islamist fundamentalists and the terrorists uh, while we were visiting Bangladesh uh, in 2015. We were both born in Bangladesh, but we were living in Atlanta in the U.S. Uh, for a while. And we were visiting to join the annual book fair, which is a pretty big thing in Bangladesh uh, to, uh, to join a book signing event in February 2015. We were targeted and stabbed repeatedly in the middle of the street in front of, if not thousands, hundreds and hundreds of people while we were walking out of the book fair and getting to the car, which was like five minutes away. Ovid died and let me see if I can do the pictures and my talk at the same time. Yeah, there was a photographer who actually managed to take the pictures. People were standing watching. People are scared. Nobody came forward to help. And the photographer took pictures and then he decided to take us to the hospital. He has been under attack since then. He has lost his job three times. Because according to the journalism, journalist world in Bangladesh, he was not supposed to act. He was just supposed to take pictures. That was his job. Why did he violate his work ethic and do something humane? That is his fault. I barely escaped. with four machete stabs on my head, with six, they're like six to seven inches. 
um, with the sliced of thumb. And most of my arteries and my uh, nerves have been damaged on both hands. What was our sin? We were authors, bloggers. We wrote about science, philosophy, literature. We criticized religion. Ovidit wrote way more than I did. He was a, <laughs> like, that was his passion. He wrote about, like, starting from origin of life to origin of the universe to the science behind homosexuality to you name it, um, the relationship between Rabindranath Tagore and Ocampo. This is me in the hospital an hour and a half later when the journalist managed to take me to Dhaka Medical College. Ovidit also founded the first online platform for the free thinkers, for the Bengali-speaking free thinkers in 2001 when, while he was doing his PhD in Singapore. Uh, a local uh, militant group took responsibility uh, for the attack. These are the books, actually, that Ovidit wrote in Bengali. They tweeted from London, and the tweet came in within 30 minutes of the attack. This group later marched with al-Qaeda of Indian subcontinent. I think they operate from India. Was this attack unprecedented? In hindsight, most probably no. We have seen desperate attacks over the decades on writers, poets. And sometimes the government has actually sent writers and poets to exile from the country to save themselves from the Islamists. Were we expecting it? No. We did not. But we had it in the back of our head. We were careful. We didn't go alone anywhere. We, were, we always had a chauffeur. Um, you know, and what we miscalculated was the strength and the organization of the Islamist fundamentalists in recent times. We didn't expect it to happen in a crowded book fair in front of thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of policemen. Actually, there was a policeman in those pictures standing and watching who decided not to act. So I think what is unprecedented about this is what has happened after the attack. <laughs> after the attack on us, the militants vowed to kill one atheist blogger a month. And they managed to do so. You think the so-called secular government, the Aumilig, led by Sheikh Hasina, would be outraged by now. Instead, they remained completely silent. And the killing spree continued. And while they eventually spoke out, after the fourth attack, the impunity was so high that the militants walked into the apartment of a blogger of those so-called atheist bloggers, they labeled them as atheist bloggers, and hacked him to death in front of his partner. But when the government criticized, condemned those attacks, they also criticized us. They said, we were actually responsible for our own de deaths because we crossed boundaries and we hurt so-called religious feelings. So the militants targeted after that, the militants targeted, I think in September or October in 2015, they targeted uh, Ovidi's publishers in their offices. One died in his office. The other one barely survived with the help of other two writers. 
In a few months, this systematic pattern of attacks extended from the so-called atheist bloggers to the minorities, Shiite, Hindu, and Christian priests, Baals, peers, foreign nationals, progressive secular writers, professors, intellectuals. Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and ISIS claimed responsibility for these slayings, though the government kept insisting that these were just homegrown, isolated events, and there is nothing to worry about. The government's response was unbelievable. While they condemned these killings, believe it or not, they also arrested, they started arresting the bloggers and writers and publishers. They started closing down publishing houses. In the name of a semi-blasphemy law, a very old British law that they decided to enact, and increase the amount of severity of the punishments. According to this new amended ICT Act, which is like Information Communication Technology Act, you can be jailed for 14 years for hurting so-called religious feelings, even for writing online. Then the next victim of these terrorist attacks was an editor of the first gay magazine called Ruban in 2016. They stabbed him along with his friend in front of his mother in his apartment. Their crime? They're homosexuals. Not only that, last year Bangladeshi police arrested 28 men in a party and they said they were arrested because they were gay. You know, I don't think Bangladesh was very open to homosexuality, you can understand, yeah, after what you see, like what you guys are seeing here in India. But we have never seen government taking action like this. Like gathering 28 people and arresting them just for being gay. Anyway, finally the government was forced to take action when, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard about it, the there was an attack on a bakery. There, for, this was an all-nighter raid when they killed 20-some uh, foreigners and locals. They kept sending the gruesome pictures to ISIS all through the night. And by then, I guess the government had no other choice to accept that these are not just isolated events. The government, when the government took action, the attacks subsided for a little bit, but then a few months ago, we have seen another journalist, another secular journalist, so-called atheist, was killed in his village. There is a deep sense of fear among the free thinkers, and they started self-censoring themselves. And they stopped writing. They wiped out their profiles. They have actually, they have been forced to leave the country. We had to, we had to figure out to, to like uh, build shelters in different countries, in India, in Nepal, in Sri Lanka. They are living the lives of refugees right now because they decided to write. They decided to speak their minds. The truth is that the liberal progressive, progressive secular community and minorities of all sorts in Bangladesh now don't just fear the Islamists, we must also fear our own government, which chooses to appease the religious fundamentalists to secure their own vote banks. We are actually caught between a rock and a hard place right now. The ICT Act is now routinely used to suppress freedom of speech and harass writers and activists, journalists, often for their comments on social media. In July 2007, a report said 
Over the past few months, past four months in Bangladesh, more than 20 journalists have been sued under the controversial law. Actually, this started in 2013 after the Shahbag movement. I think you will, we will be talking about it later, so I'm going to skip that for, for now. We will be talking about it in details a little later. And at that time, actually, the Islamists marched, hundreds and thousands of Islamists marched on the street of Dhaka. We have never seen anything like that before. And they also presented a list of 84 bloggers. Uh, the, these bloggers should be brought, under, brought to justice or killed because they, for, like, they labeled them as atheist bloggers. And since then, there have been quite a few hit lists. And what did the Bangladeshi government do? To appease the Islamists, they arrested four atheist bloggers in 2013. Ovidit worked relentlessly to free those bloggers and create international national pressure on the government. Many online bloggers, writers, have been sued by the government and by the religious fundamentalists since then. This year, the founder and the editor of a women's blog called Women Chapter was sued by this ICT Act. She was threatened to a level that she had to flee the country a few months ago. And as you can guess by now, very few arrests have been made. And no one has been brought to justice. Not only that, last year, one of the masterminds of the attacks on us was arrested. And he was shot in a crossfire. He was put in crossfire by the government while he was in police custody for two months. These crossfires by the government forces, I mean the extrajudicial killings, have become pretty common in Bangladesh. If you don't like someone, if, if someone is becoming a problem for the government, you just put them through the crossfire. You kill them. It feels like these extrajudicial killings have replaced regular investigative and police work in many cases. You can be picked up, questioned, detained, and even killed anytime without a warrant. A tape, actually you can check it out, a tape went viral a few weeks ago by the family of a victim who was picked up by RAB, the Rapid Action Battalion. While they were plotting the murder, while they were killing him, talking to him, the daughter of, the vict of that guy actually recorded it. This is like, you know, we knew about this. There are thousands of people have been killed by these uh, crossfires in the past by the government. But this just put on record the horrific reality of Bangladesh's extrajudicial killings right now. Journalists and media outlets are regularly harassed and punished for exposing the government. A few weeks ago, one of the biggest internet port, uh, online mag, um, newspaper called BD News was shut down for hours because they published something uh, showing the relationship between a military head and uh, his brother and the Islamists. Look at this picture. This is the leader of the Hifazat Islami, the guys who marched on Bangladeshi street with thousands of mullahs and demanded that the atheist bloggers should be, should be killed. Not only that, co-ed education for, for girls and boys should be stopped. And girls, should, girls have to cover themselves. Textbooks have to be changed. Hifazat Islami is a vast fundamentalist Islamic organization. 
who has been demanding these changes? And the, our government is actually given into those demands right now. The textbooks of the primary and high schools were modified in 2015 to, to take out the 17 poems and stories they deemed atheistic, especially by the Hindu writers. Conversations between boys and girls have been taken out from the books. Illustrations of girls where, with bare heads have been edited out. You know, we were not brought up in Bangladesh while I was growing up in the 1980s. I haven't seen my parents, my, my mom or my aunts, covering their heads. My mom was a lawyer. You know, um, uh, this is, what we're seeing in Bangladesh is very new. It has started happening in the last few decades. Historically, there was always tension. I have to admit that, that between, between the religious and the secular parts of Bangladesh. Like, you know, Bangladesh, we always hear that Bangladesh has a secular constitution, what happened. But also, think about it. We are also called Islam. We also have Islam as the official state religion. The Constitution provisioned all aspects of equal rights of women with men, but at the same time, it allowed following the religious rules in case of family law. Muslim women can inherit only half of what, a what her brother inherits. Hindu women doesn't inherit anything. But what we are seeing today in last few decades, or years you can say, is really unprecedented. The so-called secular political party, Aumi League, who has been in power since 2008, has been openly co-opting co with the Islamists for political interests. Look at this one. Maybe we'll talk about it later. Um, as we speak right now, Bangladesh has been paralyzed by mass protests by kids, teenagers, for the last five, six days because they simply want safe roads. They, wanted to, they want to get back home when they get out of the house or they go to schools. Think about it for a second. When does the kids, the teenagers, get out to protest just to demand safe lives? Where do you have to get to to come to that situation? But aren't we seeing the same trend all over the world now? Strong men with hypernationalism, authoritarianism, um, rise of religious rights all over in Bangladesh, Pakistan, Myanmar, India, from all kinds of religions. And also, on the other hand, white nationalism in countries like America, all over Europe. All kinds of minorities and plurality in society, in the society, are under attack all over the world right now. Interesting phenomenon that we are experiencing today is in one hand, they talk about increasing G GDP. On the other hand, we are seeing unprecedented increase in inequality, populism, and corruption. The rhetoric, us versus them. You are evil if you are not with them. They spread hate and people run with it and they forget about the real issues. We are seeing rise of Modi's, Trump's, Putin's, Erdogan, Duterte, and Sheikh Hasina's, 
all over the world. The only difference is our prime minister is a woman. I wish I could be proud of that as a woman, but I can't be. Regardless of their gender, they are the representatives of the same autocratic, patriarchal, right-wing strongmen world order we have entered right now in our lifetime. Thank you for listening. I think uh, you could uh, try and tell the audience uh, something about the Shahbag movement, because in many ways that was a turning point in recent years. Yes. So it started in 2013 when uh, the uh, people were demanding justice for the war criminals in 1971, they have never been brought to justice uh, in like 40 some years. So what happened uh, at a point, hundreds and thousands of kids, um, students and young people gathered to um, protest against lenient uh, justice, like the, the, what they, they were not given, but they were, I think they were expect, they were, um, asking for death penalty for these uh, war criminals. So at that time, there was a huge, um, I think this is the largest popular uh, protest we have seen in years in Bangladesh, where they were not only asking for proper justice for these uh, work against these war criminals, they were also asking for banning religious politics, religious parties in Bangladesh. We, at the same time, we actually started seeing a huge counter movement in Bangladesh. Uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, religious Islam Islamists got together. The Hifazat Islami that I, I talked about, they're a vast religious group. And what we saw on the streets of Bangladesh um, that we have never seen before, hundreds and thousands of the mullahs marched on the street with their 13 steps demands. We'll come to that in a moment, but before that, uh, when you, I mean, it's true that Bangladesh has always been in conflict. There were forces which were uh, radical even 30 years ago, and there, were, there was the liberal face of politics over there. But what we see now is a, is a, is a sea change in the way people talk, the way the clothes people wear, the cultural idiom of Bangladesh has been lost. Uh, the social idiom of Bangladesh, as we knew it, doesn't exist anymore. And it, this was not even so during military rule. Uh, we, we had, uh, we have seen at least two dictators. So what happened? What 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 sort of what broke? You see women in, uh, with their heads covered, like you said, that Bangladeshi women never covered their heads. So now they are covering their heads. Some did. Some did, but Some not did. everybody. No. Um, now you only see a Bangladeshi woman without her head covered. Oh, yeah, you do. You do. Um, but, it, but it has risen. Like, uh, but it's not, it's maybe, it's not even 50-50 yet, most probably. Um, let me address one thing when you said that the fabric of Bangladeshi society has been lost. I don't think it has been lost. Like we hear, think about it, like you are from India. 
discounts on that. So when we hear uh, people being, being lynched for eating cows, when we see BJP sweeping through Indian uh, politics, when we see no um, justice for the rapes that we hear about, do you think that the Indian uh, society, that the fabric of Indian society has been lost? Well, I, I, I am personally, I'm personally alarmed. I'm personally alarmed by stuff happening out there. Out here, you mean? Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it makes me feel unsettled. Are you One right? second. And, but... Uh, we are really not talking India, we are talking Bangladesh. I know, I, I just wanted to compare. And, and uh, I am of Bangladeshi origin. I heard. And uh, I'm quite a keen follower of what's happening in Bangladesh. When textbooks are being changed, not to sort of, you know, exclude stuff which is redundant, but to specifically exclude Indian writers or Indian poets, you are uh, excluding not, Tagore. Not Indian, let's say you are, you are excluding uh, Tagore. You are all Hindus are not Indians I or Muslims. I think even Nazrul Islam was excluded. No. No, Nazrul Islam is actually very much... Um, no, um, the last round of exclusions... Be, uh, there could be some of his stuff yes. where he uh, challenges God, Allah, uh, could be. But I'm saying... Um, uh, let me go back to the point that I was making. Uh, yes, we are alarmed. It's unsettling times. Uh, there is a huge conflict going on right now, a tug of war between the secular forces and the religious forces. And I like to see things in a much bigger context. And I think what we are experiencing in Bangladesh is part of what we are experiencing worldwide. Um, we need to protest this, we need to take action, we need to go back. I don't think it has been all lost yet. It is in a transition. We have to decide, as a nation right now, which direction we want to go. And what we are seeing in Bangladesh right now, in many cases, like the students protesting or you know the, the young people getting out on the street, uh, I think there is hope. And it's not only religious uh, right that which, it, which are getting powerful. I think it's also autocracy. It's also these powerful governments you know, who are solidifying their power. They're doing whatever needs to be done because they have figured out that military and the Islamists can help them to stay in power, to consolidate their power. Yeah, which brings me to this point that you, in Bangladesh, it's virtually a two-party system. You have the Awami League and you have the BNP. Now, the BNP is aligned with the Jamatis. And uh, what Sheikh Hasina has done is that she has, uh, by law, prohibited uh, religious parties from contesting elections. But she has gone and aligned with Hifazatul Islam, which in many ways, I mean, the Jamatis in Bangladesh were a declining force. And Hifazatul Islam is the rising force. So she has gone and entered into a formal alliance with the Hifazatul Islam. So where does this leave space for a third force to come up? 
Um, actually, it's not a two-party system, but the only two political parties uh, dominate the, dominates uh, the yeah. system. That's one thing. Second thing is, so what you just said, that actually proves that it's about politics. It's about autocracy. Because they don't care if it's Jamaat Islami, because Hasina has made alliance with Jamaat Islami before. Uh, they don't care as long as they can stay in power. They will make alliances with anybody. They will sell the country any way they need to. So, so it's about politics at the end of the day. That's how I see it. Uh, a couple of more points and then we move to the audience. You know, it's interesting when you mention that Bangladesh always had a bit of a problem. Contradiction? Uh, contradiction, problem, uh, inability to accept contrarian views. Uh, one of the first writers to be expelled or forced out of Bangladesh uh, is a very dear friend of mine, Daud Haider. Uh, who had to take shelter in Calcutta. And that's how I met him and our friendship grew. Uh, then after that, when Ershad became president, he forced the government of India to throw Daud Haider out of India. And that's how Daud Haider had to go and take shelter in Berlin. Uh, after that, we saw Taslima Nasreen's case, and then the current attack on writers, Humayun bloggers. Ajad, Professor Humayun Ajad was oh, hacked to death. Hacked to death, and yeah. Obhijitra's incident, and then the other bloggers, writers, who were being killed, who are being chased, who are being thrown out. Many of them have left. Many of them have left, and, and, and the sad thing, and, and it's quite scary, there was a time when you could leave, I mean, you could leave your country you could escape persecution and prosecution and take shelter in Europe or Canada or Australia. Today, you can't even do that. So Daud tells me that he feels as unsafe in Berlin today as he felt some 40 years ago when he was thrown out of Bangladesh. Because you have similar forces spread out over there. So how do you deal with it? There is no place to run either. Very interesting question, Kantanda, and I wish I had an answer for that. I really don't. Um, I guess we fight, we stand up, we protest, we try to do the right thing. What else? Uh, it's not the first time human civilization is actually experiencing this. We have seen, um, uh, you know, I always say this in my writings, in my talks, that human civilization, you know, might, might uh, go forward two steps, it goes back one step. It has never, it has never gone in a linear path. So, which is sad, uh, but we can't be hopeless. Uh, now, you also made a passing reference to the Gulshan attack. The bakery, yeah. The bakery attack. Holy artisan bakery. Uh, where it was a night-long standoff, and uh, you had a bunch of young jihadis who had taken over the place. And it took hundreds of armed police to come in and regain control. Uh, the interesting thing is that the boys who were involved in it, they were well-educated. 
They went to some of the most expensive schools and colleges. They came from the cream of Bangladeshi society, and I think it was the cream of Dhaka society. And many of their parents were actually a part, they are a part of the Awami League. At least in one instance, the father is uh, not only a party member, but an office holder in the Awami League. So this shoots down this thing that uh, uh, radicalism comes from deprivation, it comes from denial, it comes from being uh, marginalized. These were not marginalized people. I mean, there are some really marginalized people in Bangladesh as they are in India. But these boys of Gulshan, and even after that, people who are being tracked down, the Bangladeshi Canadian who masterminded the Gulshan attack, he, these are not marginalized people. No. So that's exactly where... Um, so what drives it? I think it's, uh, you know, th there was a huge rhetoric before that it's the madrasa education which ended up this way. And, uh, you know, we ended up this at this point in the country because of that. But uh, this one showed that it was not just that. So I think it's, n you know, this is, this is one of the biggest things that I write about, that it's not just about religion. It's also the political order. It's also, I think we are losing hope. You know, we are suffocated. The, the young people in Bangladesh are suffocated. They, that's why they are out in the streets. You know, because there is no, it's like upward mobility is in stake. Uh, hope is in stake. Corruption is all over. Uh, only like 1% of the population who are, uh, who are actually related to the government, either BNP or Amalek, doesn't matter, whoever is in power. Um, they are the fortunate ones who has all the privileges. So I think the, in, in one hand, what I talked about is actually, uh, we hear about, oh, Bangladesh is, is uh, rising in GDP. But on the other hand, we're losing hope. We're losing upward mobility. There is increasing amount of inequality. Corruption is out of the window. So I, when I was uh, in Bangladesh, this time in Dhaka, I saw my cousins, you know, they're stuck in, um, in these uh, urban apartments. They are either on internet the whole time or a lot of them are into drugs. Yaba is a very big issue in Bangladesh. The whole system in the country has become so corrupted that I think people are losing hope. They want to change the system. They want to change. It's just that they have very few options in front of them. When these, uh, the, another thing, I believe that the neoliberal system in the world in last few decades have wiped out all other narratives. There is no other narrative left. Religion was injected very systematically, actually, in Bangladesh over the years. There was an interesting uh, interview, uh, actually I talk about it in my TED talk, uh, that uh, Prince Salman of um, Saudi Arabia, he was asked, about the religious fundamentalism spreading jihadi um, culture all over the world and being responsible for it. 
he replies back um, in an interview with Washington Post, and he goes, you guys are complaining now? You are the one, the West was the one who actually demanded it, asked us to spread Wahhabi religious culture in these developing Muslim countries. And we did this systematically for you as part of the Cold War. And now you are blaming us? You know, I actually showed that clip in my TED talk. So what I'm saying is, sorry, I went, I, I, I went on a tangent. But um, I'm, what I'm saying is, it's the political order. It's the social order. It's the hopelessness. Uh, has the, all these things have spread to a limit that people, these young kids, are just suffocated right now. It's not about just madrasas or just religious community. It's all over. Thank you. So now we have about 15 minutes. Uh, we can take many questions. Keep your questions brief, to the point. Uh, and if you have any opinion or commentary to share, you can do it after this uh, session. Thank you. So maybe we can start from, yeah, please, ma'am. Rashida, I was wondering if you've uh, ever tried to talk to uh, some uh, people with fundamentalist opinions. Because here in India, as you point out, we're a mirror of you. And uh, I find that it's harder and harder to talk to people on the other side, but that that is the most important conversation to have. So I was wondering if you've, been, if you've tried to talk to people who don't think like you. Because otherwise, we're always pirouetting in these smaller liberal circles that are shrinking. It's very true. Um, and I actually feel that so much that we were brought up in a bubble where we thought, oh, you know, uh, the middle class, educated, urban uh, class, that we thought, wow, we live in a Bangladesh, like such a secular country. Just the way I think the liberals in America miscalculated the Rust Belt white nationalists. You know, that's why Trump is in power right now. And we have done the same thing. Uh, and it's true, it's very true that it has been polarized to a level that we don't, we, we don't talk anymore. Actually, um, uh, this was my biggest fight with Avijit. Uh, this was the biggest fight in my conjugal life, that he would actually engage into uh, debates with the, with the mullahs in Bangladesh. Uh, right before we went, he was threatened by a couple uh, of mullahs who said, when you come to Bangladesh, we'll kill you. So it's hard, but you're right. We need to try to do that. But have you ever tried to do it? Um, not face to face, through my writing. We talk about, because a lot of the times they just think that we are only blaming religion. We are only blaming Islam. Um, you will see them uh, complaining all the time that how come you just complain about Islam? What about other religions? But the truth is, we talk about, we actually write against all religions, but it doesn't get to them. Um, no, I think writing, the not face to face. The Mullah perspective would be, you write against every religion, but not against Islam. Um, no, they actually... They would be very happy with it. That's Next true. question. My question is, uh, in the last, let's say, five to ten years that you have been kind of engaging in writing on this issue, has anything changed in terms of how you write about religion or what you feel about religion? And so therefore, just the way you're engaging with religion itself in your writing, has anything changed in that? 
we have been writing for actually almost two decades now. Um, uh, the uh, blog that I uh, talked about, Muktamona, uh, was founded in 2001. Uh, that was the first blog uh, online platform for uh, Bengali-speaking freethinkers. And it's not a homogenous writing, you know. Uh, Avijit and I uh, contradicted on this. Like he he thought religion was the only issue. You know, we need to we need to just speak up against religion. I think religion. When we talk about religion, we also need to talk about politics, and cultural aspects, and history. So you know, it's not just that um, uh, it, it's not that we all write about the same thing. It's evolving. We are all learning. Uh, we are all uh, evolving as well. Um, after um, the satanic versus controversy, in an interview with Christopher Hitchens, uh, Shashi Tharoor went on to say that who, which country is willing to fight for these people? He meant the atheists. Given the geopolitical nature of the statement, what do you think the left should do in order to actively combat Islamic fundamentalism? Um, left. No, just, just one second. Why should left alone be con contesting? I mean, that's my view. I mean, if you think that something is genuinely wrong, everybody should be contesting it. Yeah. Um, that's why I was actually asking, uh, left where? Uh, in internationally. Um, I don't know where the left is right now. Like, if you ask me about Bangladeshi left, they have compromised completely. Um, there are people, there are lost of left-leaning people right now uh, who are known to be, you know, atheists before. They are. They all think that religion is not a problem. The only problem is the is the class problem. Uh, you know, economic class, which is a huge problem. We cannot deny that. But this is also the other side of my writing that I think when we talk about religion. We need to talk about politics. We need to talk about these uh, class issues. We need to talk about um, everything else with it, because they are all related. And um, I, I really don't know uh, how this should be fought, because the way it's getting fought right now in Europe, uh, you know, banning the veils or you know, um, uh, all the the attitude they have towards uh, Muslims in Europe is problematic. It's actually not solving the problem. What Trump is doing today is not solving the problem. We, I think we have come to a point in the world right but now even, that we even need to. Even sweet talking doesn't solve a problem. I know. Like we but had, what is the solution? We had, we had uh, pre our president Pranab Mukherjee went uh, to Syria or something, one of these countries he went to. And he said that uh, this is not the way to fight the ISIS. We need to fight ISIS with the help of Tagore and uh, <laughs> Nazrul Islam. So what do you do? You draw books from there. They're not you going to read those books. books and say, oh, we are so bad, we are so wrong. Mia culpa, I'm is not he, going to do it he again. He's a Bengali. That's why. You know, this is what I say all the time. Bengali men need to stop writing poems. Unless they write, they stop writing poems, will not go forward. Okay, ma'am, you had a question. You see hope somewhere, and I, I appreciate when you said that it is not all gone. There are these uh, undercurrents, there are these hopes. Uh, elaborate, please, on that. I mean, rather, I mean, of course, we know that things are dark, 
but if you have noticed in Bangladesh something that like for example these kids coming on the road many of them will grow up and have a critical energy in their hearts um, where else you see such kinds of places where something a voice can show up and what are your hopes um, I get hope almost every day last night actually uh, young woman she said she's a primary school teacher uh, they're opening a library and um, you know they are uh, dedicating the day uh, to Avijit um, I wrote a book on evolution I hear from like remote place in Rangamati who, uh, a little kid will write to me and say you know when I read your book that changed my views about my existence about how I see the world you know, we hear these kind of things all the time. But what happens is in these protests, what we are seeing is they get hijacked. You know, there is, there is a lack of leadership. Um, I really don't have an answer for that. Uh, how we will go over this like two-party business. You say, Aumil League or BNP or BJP and Congress. <laughs> and And get to a point where some, like the leadership will actually genuinely think about change. Um, but I see hope because I see the hunger. I see the willingness everywhere um, for change. Last couple of questions. Yes, ma'am. Quickly, no. Uh, hello, ma'am. So my question is like, as you said, that what Trump is doing to the Muslims or how there is social unrest, even in India we see among a certain section of the society, they feel that after Modi has come into power, they are not very safe within their own homes. So just to tackle this, there's a slight suggestion that when you talk about religious radicalism or Sir talk about, talks about it, why can't we just uh, start using the term that people who are propagating religion and not the religion itself. Maybe the holy scriptures of the religion, they are not the problem. They don't propagate that there should be unrest among the society, that you should go against other religions. But there are those people who are uh, promoting that religion, or those who are like, if we talk about Islam, so maybe. what's your question? My question is, isn't a term change, like a vocab change is necessary when you talk about such things, instead of putting religion, religion, religion again? Why can't you just start saying in your speeches that it is not the religion, but the people who are propagating this religion in their own way? That's, that's slightly problematic. Question. We'll take a couple of other questions. No, no, no. I want to answer that. No, because we're running out of time. Uh, uh, but I think this yeah, is very okay. important. Uh, to answer your question, religion is a problem as well. I, I do think, you know, we should be allowed to criticize religion as well. As I am saying that it's not only religion, it's also politics, it's also corruption, it's also culture, it's also history. I want to make sure that I say it's also religion. Religion does propagate hate. It does propagate, you know, division. There is, these are ancient things, these are medieval things, we have moved on. We should be able to, we have the rights to, to you know, criticize religion. If it, you don't like it, you criticize me as well. You don't pick up the machetes. Let's have that healthy culture. So, so that's essentially the whole idea of fighting machetes with pen. Uh, 
Yeah, yes, sir. My question is that the fight between the machete and the pen, it seems that the pen is losing, especially because people tend to read only the stuff that they like. So these echo chambers that are forming, if you're not even able to communicate to the opposite side and the only thing you're doing is communicating your own side, what's the benefit of fighting with the pen? And if not, if the pen is losing, then what other tool do we have? Um, Avijit used to say one thing when I used to tell him that why do you just talk about religion? What about politics? What about, like I have a lot of like left background in me. Um, he used to say, why don't you do what you think is right, let me write what I think is right. So, you know, um, I think I, you are right, only pen will not change anything. But that is also a pretty important tool. But the real changes will come from the streets, you know, from the people taking action, uh, making the changes, giving lives. Uh, it's very true that I am in a safe place, though. What I have uh, suffered, uh, even after everything has happened to me, I'm still speaking today from a safe podium. You know, um, I think we all need to do whatever we can from our own positions. The whole idea of free speech is that there should be no restrictions on it. Freedom which comes with restrictions is not freedom. It's conditional permission. So if you have free speech with reasonable restriction, that's not a freedom. That is just a permission. It's like a permit which is, or a license issued by government that, yeah, you can speak. But if you, sp it's like driving a car. If you cross the speed limit, you get hauled in. So the whole idea of free speech is that I should have the right to speak my mind freely. You may not like what I'm saying. You may hate me for saying the stuff which I say. But you have no right to stop me from saying it. If you don't like it, like she said, I mean, you, you are free to call me names. You are free to hit back at me. Not with machetes, but with words. And that's why I think ultimately the pen is going to win this battle. In the past, there have been other battles and the pen has won. Thank you very much. Thank you to the organizers. And thank you so much for being over here. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.